Yat A. Hello. Welcome to Real Native Roots Untold Stories, a podcast by a Native woman with deep roots, hosted by yours truly, Vicki Katsuli Boy Oldman. I am a lover of stories, a connector, and a holder of wisdom keepers. Each month, we will be connecting with our Native relatives and exploring what medicine our guests share and offer to us. Please join me on this uncharted journey to learn, connect, and reflect. Ayahat, thank you. Hello, relatives. How are you all doing this beautiful day? I'm sitting here looking out the window and it's just a beautiful day. It just seems really quiet and peaceful. I am literally smiling ear to ear because right before I came on, I had a dialogue with my 18-year-old son and it was a deep dialogue. It was so beautiful. And we were just talking about life, life in general. I was getting ready for this podcast and looking for a poem. And sometimes I'm really looking hard and then sometimes it just shows up. So right before he came in to talk to me, I got the book and I just kind of just flipped my thumb through wherever it stopped. I, I stopped and I saw it and I was holding my finger in there while we were dialoguing. We dialogued for almost like 30 minutes and it got a little emotional. I was like, I go, someone, please read this poem to me. I, I've been holding it. I want to see if this is the right poem for today's podcast. So he read it and he's like, wow, mom, that's crazy. Like this poem was about what we were talking about. I'm like, right? This is the poem. So that is my check-in with you. Beautiful moment that I had with my 18-year-old son. It was a deep, deep conversation that was really medicine for me. So he read this poem. It's a beautiful poem. This poem is coming from the woman named Mary Lyons. And the book she wrote is called Wisdom Lessons, Spirited Guidance from an Ojibwe Great-Grandmother. The name of the poem is called The Journey from Within. And it starts like this. Our creation story speaks of our togetherness throughout time here on Mother Earth. Our spirit soared into this blanket of a body that lives in, thus we live together, spirit and body living in the we. Life is like a written book. Each chapter is made up of many adventures featuring many emotions. Sometimes we get stuck with a chapter that keeps repeating itself. Life is like a tapestry. Each color is a heartfelt event. Each stitch is like a wound one experienced. Often, the tapestry will display all the craziness of the adventures one has lived. Life is like music. Each rhythm shows the anger or the happiness that one experienced. Each word within the song expresses happiness or sorrow. Often, this will be the calling card for the next dance in life. Remember this, you are the author of the book of your life. You can change anything within your chapters. Most of all, be sure your last chapter is a happy one. You are the seamstress, the tailor, 
the designer of your tapestry. You can always add beauty and understanding, stitching in your truth. You are the musician, the songwriter of the tune you dance to. You can always end everything on a good note. Sending tobacco prayers out to all to know that you carry the key to opening your inner happiness. You just have to allow your inner spirit to awaken and stay awake. Life is good today. Ah, so much yumminess in this poetry. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment that I get to share with you all that my son and I had. And this poem just was a nice seal with a hug. So I leave that gift to you all to, to sit with that poem. Now to introduce my guest. I've known this woman. Her name is Donna Fairbanks. I've known her for a long time. And we met through work, really, through the feel of doing work in Indian country. And to me, she's like the grandmother of Indian housing. She's an enrolled member of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation, also the Mississippi Band and of the Crane Clan. And her Ojibwe name in English is Eagle Woman. I would love for her to share with us the language in how she translates that. I love how she describes herself. She says she's in her winter season. And so without further ado, I humbly, just in honor, want to introduce my friend to you all, Donna Fairbanks. Donna, say hello to our listeners. Buju and Anin Nij, which is greetings to friends. And it always gives me goosebumps. And I'm picturing, I do pictures in my head, so I'm picturing the folks out there. It's so much easier if I see people in front of me, but I also have learned to picture people in my head if I can't see them in person. So I, I picture every single one of you, and I'm greeting you and praying that this is a good day for you. Thank you and bonjour to you. I have to circle back and tell you the funny thing about that word later on. But I'm so glad oh. you're here, Donna. It's like forever, forever <laughs> since I've seen you. <laughs> but it was just right to happen. Just right to happen was today. And it's a beautiful day here in Minnesota, up on a white earth res. As I look out, I look, I see over a pond and a huge wooded area, and we still have snow. We still, and our ponds are still frozen, but slowly now they'll come to life. I would say in a week and a half. I'll see the pond and the grass will be popping out and the snow will be gone. <laughs> and that will be a very happy day for me. <laughs> I love snow, but it's time for the mm. spring to come. Yes. So I'm before I have you tell us a little bit about more of you, I'm curious what you thought about that poem. Oh, I loved it. I love poetry. I write it every now and then, not as often as I'd like. But I do write poetry every now and then, short poems, actually. But I think they're so important. There's a rhythm to everything I have found, especially poetry. But I think my whole life has had a rhythm to it, ups and downs and circles and squares and round. And so as I look back, when I'm in my winter season, which I consider myself to be, I have wonderful memories, very sad but lessons learned from them. Luckily, I have my faculty still about me, so I'm so grateful for that. I truly am. Those are gifts that I still have. 
I would love to see or read or hear you share one of your poems one day. That would be amazing. I'm just learning to really appreciate poems. I've read poems and some of them you have to really sit with for a while, right? But mm-hmm. during this podcast journey, particularly, I think last year, the end of the last quarter, I just started reading and the poems. And now I'm just like hungry for them. I'm like looking uh, for poems. So I just find that interesting how a big part of my life, I didn't really embrace the beauty of poetry. So yeah, I'd love to hear and read one of yours. Thank um, you. I, yes. So thank you, my language, for, for being here. I think it's just important to give witness to people and what they've experienced and how they came to be where they're at right now. And there's so much learnings in one's life. Take us back a little bit. I remember talking to you before, and I think you had said that you never really lived on the res, but your your family clearly is from the reservation out there. Just maybe tell us a little bit about your background, like your grandparents, your mother. Do you have siblings? Just give us a painting of Donna's roots to how you grew up to becoming the grandmother (laughs) of housing is what I like to refer to you as. (laughs) Thank you. I, I really, truly consider that a real honor to hear you say that because everyone should have good, decent, and affordable housing. I've just always felt that way. And I've been without a lot of resources in my life as far as physical resources. We were taken from my mother. That was a real common thing to do with Indian kids, was to take them and put them in a home and try to assimilate them into the dominant society. And me and my two sisters, and I'm the youngest of the three, that all, that happened to all of us. We were put in foster homes, and then we finally were all three in a different foster home. So we were separated, but we were finally all three put in a Catholic orphanage and where the nuns. There was one other Indian girl there while we were there, but we were the only Indians. And of course, that was not an acceptable. I mean, we the prediction for us wasn't good. We were going to all, according to what we were being taught, uh, unless they could be saving us, we'd all be going to hell and that we were not nice people. And so that's kind of the premise under which me and my two sisters. My two sisters were very shy, very quiet, not I. I didn't agree with anything being said. I knew I was a good person. I knew every chance I got, I would be punished. (laughs) I was punished a lot for speaking out and saying I was a good person, that Indians were good people, and the nuns didn't, you know, do well with that. So I got punished a lot, but I kept it up. I was maybe three. I was the youngest, so three, four, and five. And first, we were put in foster homes. My father was non-Native, and he came back from the war, Second World War, pretty damaged physically and emotionally. So he was a chronic alcoholic who died quite young and who really did not participate as a parent. His mother was from Norway, and he married a man from Greece. So my Greek grandfather, which I didn't know wasn't my blood grandfather for many years, loved us as kids. They saw us rarely because we were sent to an orphanage. So they didn't have a lot of money, but it was quite a distance. It was probably 20 miles from where they lived. So 
we didn't get to see my grandfather that often. And my grandmother, he really didn't like Indians. And my mother is Native and my father was white. So I never really got a chance to know my father very well. He came back from the Second World War pretty wounded emotionally and physically. He had a big scar down his face from being wounded in the war. I never really knew him. And then he died at age 63 of chronic alcoholism. My mother finally gained custody of us. We were taken from her, which wasn't unusual back in the 40s, to take the Indian kids and put them in a mission school or some kind of a school, which is what they did with me and my two sisters. A couple times they sent us to foster home, but that didn't work out too well because we couldn't all three be together. So we were finally together at the orphanage, and my two sisters were models. They embraced Christianity. They followed whatever the nuns said. We lived there full time, went to school there, lived there, and I was the delinquent. (laughs) I was the one that was always swimming uphill (laughs) and not listening to the nuns, uh, talking in church, swimming around, turning around, looking. I just was a, a uncooperative little girl, and I just was punished quite frequently. They would, one man would hold me down on a bed, and it was these iron beds, and then my stomach would hit the end of the bed, and then another nun would hold you down, and I would get beaten across the back of my legs with a rubber hose. That was the punishment. My older sister would stand and cry and ask the nuns not to do that, to do it to her. I actually got punished quite frequently, but it never stopped me from speaking my peace and living what I thought was my true self. I was an Indian young girl, and I was going to let the world know it, and I was proud of it. And of course, according to the nuns, we were pagans. We were not good people. And we weren't baptized when we got there. They quit wanting to baptize us because otherwise we had these big sins on our soul. So I didn't embrace Christianity very well either. I swam uphill and I was left-handed. That was the other thing they wanted to make me right-handed because back in those days in the 40s, if you were left-handed, for sure you belonged to the devil. (laughs) As I, I mean, I laugh about it now. So I spent years, <laughs> and we were there till I was 13. We were pretty young when we got there. So at age 13, my mother regained custody of us, and we moved to Duluth. I had a lot of resentment toward my mother and her, and I really didn't get along for years and years and years. I was a very naughty little girl. If she said yes, I said no. And she said, whatever it was, I always did the opposite. I wasn't. My two sisters were model daughters. My mother was happy she had those two. Wasn't happy about me. But I got married very young. I didn't get along with my mom, and I ran away a lot. I finally found someone that loved me, or I thought loved me, and he wanted to marry me. I was only 15 years old. He was 19, but he was very kind, soft-spoken. He was very nice to me. I married him. We're still married. Wow. Married in 1955. I had just turned 15. 
I didn't have any children for two years. Everybody thought that, oh, they had to get married. And no, no, he never touched me. I was a Catholic little girl. If he wanted to touch me or do anything, he had to marry me. That was it. And he did. And so there were some really rough years. I didn't finish high school. I was in the 10th grade. But finally got a payment of $97 a person. And then three of my children are enrolled and three of my children are not. And it had to do with blood quantum. I took their money and my money and it started the University of Minnesota. I thought, I've got to go to school. So I paid for my books and tuition with my tribal payment. But I need to do something for my family and I need to do something for myself. So I started the university and I loved it. And I took the extension classes so I could be at home during the day and then I'd go to school at night. I had all my six children by then. By the time I was 12, I married at 15. I had my first child at 17. I had all six by the time I was 27. I loved being a mom. Loved it. I had all healthy children. I liked cooking. I liked cleaning. I liked playing with the kids. I enjoyed my married life with my husband had it certainly unhappy times, but I kind of pushed through it. I have four daughters and two sons, and they've turned out to be wonderful, wonderful adults. But I loved having them. I loved cooking. I loved baking. I loved cleaning. I loved going places with them. So that part of my life was very happy and very fulfilling. My marriage was rocky. My husband was, he'd go out a lot drinking. I Never liked to drink. I just was not a drinker. I liked to cook. I liked to bake. I liked to take care of the kids. And I liked to be a friendly neighbor. So as the years went by, when I finally got my first payment, the $97, and three of my children got the, I took that money and then enrolled in the University of Minnesota, paid for my books and tuition. And I really felt like I was, even though it was the children's money, I felt like they would benefit from me being educated. So I felt like I was borrowing the money at the time and I'd certainly pay it back. So that's what I did. And I found that when I started school, the people that I met and the ideas and the dreams and the, I started dreaming. I actually started dreaming and remembering my dreams and felt like I had a really good future and things were going to be good for my children. I mean, I actually have college graduates for my children. My children have all been successful in whatever they've wanted to do. Not that they haven't had pitfalls, had to pick themselves back up, but they've done it. They're strong. I'm so proud of my children. My husband finally went through treatment, finally had the nerve to say, I can't live with you. You're an alcoholic. If you don't get help, I'm going to leave you. I finally made enough money working for my tribe in education and helping other students get enrolled in school or whatever they wanted to do, that I felt I could support my own family. And so he went through treatment and he didn't drink after that. My life started to change in really good, positive ways. And certainly things would fall back. Our house burnt down two days after Christmas. We had a malfunction in our furnace and our whole Christmas, but it's a new beginning. So we saved. We had a little money from insurance. We bought another home, and our lives changed. I got better jobs the more education I got. 
And finally, I got to work with my tribe on a steady basis in education, helping others. So I liked being in the helping profession. I liked helping other people. I liked to try to be a role model to let folks know, yes, you can have six kids. Yes, you can work. Yes, you can go to school. Yes, you can. It's hard, but you can. You need help. You need to be organized. <laughs> and every now and then, the dog's going to puke on the floor. The dishwasher will break down. The dish, not the dishwasher. The washing machine will break down. The car won't start. You'll get a flat tire. Something will happen at school, but that's life. So I learned how to ebb and flow. You sure knew how to ebb and flow. I mean, to be a mom at such a young age, right? And most of your life, young, you were in an orphanage. And then another part of your life, your mom took you back. And then you became a mom. The wisdom that you learned as a young mother, but also the wisdom in the marriage, right? I appreciate you even just saying, like, I finally had the courage to say what I needed. And, you know, it, it took some time for you to finally get to the point to have that courage. Because it takes courage to really tell somebody you love what you need and when you're not happy. And it's scary. It is so scary to do that. But when you do that, it's so freeing at the same time. So I don't know if you want to respond to that, but it just, that's sort of where my curiosity is just the, your upbringing and then, and then starting a family young and then just really ebb and flowing that to really now where life is starting to really shift for you in this, this point of your journey. You know, I think the biggest thing for me was I didn't know anything about men or boys. I had no brother. The orphanage was all girls. The nuns were all women. We had a, a priest that came in once a week, Father Beater. I didn't see him as a man. I saw him as a priest. So I didn't know a lot about men. I knew about my mother had sisters. I didn't even see my aunties a lot. And the nuns were all sisters and all girls in the orphanage. So what I knew about a man, you could put in a symbol and still fit your finger. So when I met my future husband, he was so funny. He was fun. He could get mean. He had a drinking problem. I didn't realize it. It wasn't around liquor. So I didn't know about things like that. But I did learn. And finally, I had worked for my tribe. I loved working for my tribe. I was so proud of my tribe hired me. When I was like in my early 30s, the tribe hired me in education to help. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And I was still going to school. And I finally could say to him, you, you either don't love me or you have a drinking problem. In either case, I can't continue this. You've got to either tell me that you really love me and you need to go into treatment. He went into treatment. That was the best thing he could have done for us. I could finally say, I can't do this. I didn't know enough, enough to be stronger earlier, but I did gain my strength as I got more education. So I'd pay for a class here and a class there. Never did finish a four-year degree. Wanted to and kept thinking, well, I had to stop for a while. Our house burnt down. My oldest daughter was a senior in high school and got pregnant. My husband finally went to treatment. Life just kind of came at me. And I had signed up for school and took, was taking three classes at the U. But I had all these things I had to deal with. I just decided, of course, my priority was my family. So I thought, well, I paid for the classes and maybe the professors will let me sit in or whatever later. So whatever was thrown at me, I had this inner strength. 
I called upon my grandfather, my Indian grandfather. He was a leader in the Minneapolis area. He helped a lot of Indian people. He would go to court. He spoke Ojibwe fluently as well as English. So he would go to court and translate for the judges what the Ojibwe, what the Indians were saying, and then he would translate what the judge or the court was saying to the defendants. And so he helped a lot. And I knew that about my grandfather. And my grandmother always had food on the stove, a big pot of soup. Whomever came over, she kind of lived, it was a city in Minneapolis. It was an area in South Minneapolis. It was kind of like an urban res. And grandma lived in a fourplex. And people always came to their house and grandma always had soup. Grandpa always had a place for someone to stay. So I had good role models from my grandma and grandpa, my mother's mother and father. My father, I didn't know very well. I just never, he was a a white man who drank a lot. His mother was from Norway and didn't like Indians at all and kind of shunned us and didn't want us in the house. So I, you know, I was an Indian girl. Maybe I looked white, but people go, you don't look Indian. I'd say, well, I am. <laughs> it's like, well, guess what? I am. Well, you, you don't have to tell everybody that. And then I'd say, well, why not? That's who I am. Because back in the 40s and 50s, you know, there were still, well, there were still signs that no Indians allowed. I would walk down Hennepin Avenue and I would see stores that signs saying no Indians allowed. I think, I wonder what that's all about. I never went in the stores with any money, but I thought it was odd. These signs were up. I never asked anybody. I just thought it was strange. I thought, well, if I wanted to go in, if I had money, I certainly would. So I had a strength in me that I know I got from my grandpa Fairbanks and my grandma Mary Fairbanks, both of them. They died before I reached the age of 10. Both of them died, but I had such good memories of them because they lived in a fourplex. My mother lived upstairs and they lived downstairs. And then two under other Indian families lived there too. So it was a place that was rented to Indians in the urban area. So I had some support and a proudness. So I was always, always so blessed and felt so good that I was Indian. I felt like it was such a gift, and I still feel that way today. Mother was born and raised right here on the whitest reservation. I actually have a land site that my grandfather had that I we put our home on. I overlook a huge pond. I can see through my grandfather's eyes as I look out into the woods and the pond. My grandfather saw that. He walked in the same woods. He hunted there. I mean, there's just such wonderful magic knowing that my grandma and grandpa were here where I am right now, and my mother and her sisters and her brothers. I'm truly blessed that I have this opportunity. So I've lived here for 18 years now, back home, but I came up here a lot, you know, especially when I was working in education or working for the tribe in housing, luckily, or the Minnesota Housing Finance Agency. I've loved housing. I've just always felt really close to everybody deserves a decent house and an affordable house. So when I had the chance and the tribe got some state-funded housing money 
from appropriation, I asked the tribe if they'd please hire me and that I'd go to real estate school. So I did. And then they hired me for it. And that was in 1977. And I've been there ever since <laughs> in housing. Thank you, Donna. I was curious about how you started to transition into this work. I just want to just lift you here because hearing your story and how you grew up and, you know, it's funny, you were, you were describing yourself as like, I was always pushing back. And whenever someone said no, I said yes. Or if they said yes, I said no. And I, it just made me smile because I was like, hmm, here's a young spirit who just just knows. She came in just knowing. To me, it feels like it has served you, right? It has served you up to this point to be curious, to to know who you are, also to push back when need be. So just lifting you in your resilience and sharing that story and all that it's offered and made you who you are today. I know that all of that experience, I'm sure, has helped you in the career of housing. As you said, the tribe hired you in 77, right? And so fast forward, we're here in 2022, and we still have housing shortage in Indian country. It's still a work in progress. And so you've been doing this work for a long time. I know you've worked in different parts of managing a housing authority, but you've also done training on the ground with community people and even nationally training other trainers to to do this work in their community. So where I'm curious about in the span of the time that you've been working from 1977 to this present moment, what have you learned about this work that you're doing, wanting to make sure that everyone has a home, that everybody has a right to have a home? And what are some learnings there? And what do we need to be doing more of and maybe even less of in this work? You know, I think we still have a whole lot of folks that aren't really aware. It's like, you know, on the reservations, we still have HUD housing. We still have housing from USDA and they have certain criteria, which of course you'd have to have. But to know, to let people know they have choices, I think that's the biggest thing that I continuously talk to folks about. If somebody calls me and says they're being evicted, they don't think it's right, it's all political or whatever. I still get the phone calls or the visits from folks only because I was in housing for so long. So it's like Donna housing. And so just to say, you know, I'm not a miracle worker. I'm, I can try to give you some ideas on things that you may want to think about to do that may be helpful and steps you may want to take. But it's entirely up to you and the program and what went on before. And I do know that a lot of our families don't, they tell their side. Okay. So, and I will actually go into a board meeting with a family if they want me to act on their behalf to see if there's any way that whatever decision was made can either be reversed or, or another option put. Because if our families get evicted, they don't have choices. There's nowhere for them to go, but except overcrowded, you know, and go live with a relative. And then you pretty soon you've got, you know, 13 to 15 people living in one place and that's not healthy or we still don't have enough housing. There's, we have a long waiting list of money 
We need money for housing. Whether the state appropriates it, the federal government, HUD, USDA, private foundations, private funders, housing is still a big, it's such a basic need. Everyone deserves a decent house to live in. And it's still a challenge to make sure that, that happens. I don't believe in multifamily housing for our people. I believe in single-family homes. But to build an apartment building, it doesn't work. It didn't work on my res. I don't know other reses where it really worked, where you could build a 32-unit apartment building and have a four- and five-bedroom family housing and have it work. No. For the most part, if given an opportunity and funding, we need single-family homes or at the most twin homes. Having a garage separate the houses. You know, two garages abutted together. I've certainly testified before many funders, Congress people, housing people, to say what I think, you know, what works the best or what the tribe or the housing department tells, you know, what they need. We need a lot more housing. I mean, how, how much money have we gotten in the last two years from, from HUD, the BIA? Is the BIA even offering housing anymore, housing monies, USDA, uh, rural development. Are we still last on the totem pole for housing? I don't know. I know we have long waiting in this beer and whiter for housing. Thank you for sharing. What I appreciated is early on you had said people still don't know, like they don't know the resources that are out there. And the other thing is that people have choices because people are so used to the HUD homes, right? They're, they're used to that. Mm -hmm. And it actually made me think about a time I was on a site visit with Barbara Roloff, my sister. Yeah. And we're with another person. We're visiting their housing site. And anyway, that executive director had said, you know, why do we have to use the model of the HUD home, like everybody deserves a beautiful home. You know, we don't have to stick to the stick bill homes. We should really be practicing you know, what sovereignty means. We make our own choices. We can decide how we want to use these resources and decide how these homes can look. When she had said that, she was describing like, if you go to a typical HUD home, it's very generic, I would say. And to be thinking about how to use the money differently to beautify the community. And I'm seeing this movement in different communities where they're really trying to emerge sort of like the culture and the art into these homes. So that, that's sort of one thing. The other thing, when you were talking about multifamily, single family homes, it made me think about a long time ago when we lived off the land as family, we did have our own homes, but we were lived in camps. So everybody still had their own space. You know, right. They were spread out enough, right? But you didn't have several people <laughs> sharing like my culture, like a whole one to be like one family unit, you know? Yeah. So anyway, that's sort of what took me back to thinking about how we used to live. And there were certain protocols in place and how we did our living, right? And what was around our home. So that's sort of where I'm curious about. And I know there's just, there's just so much. I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this topic in terms of like money, the need for housing development, the need for continued education on the ground with community, but also with staffing, you know, capacity within the organizations. There's just, there's a lot of that, but there's also, I wanted to sprinkle in that there's also shifts that are happening in how 
leaders are starting to look differently and how to manage these resources and envision. Earlier in, you were telling your story, like I started to have these visions and these dreams. You got really excited and I'm starting to see folks think that way and start to use that in their planning in these communities. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that is so good to do a development, a housing development, not just an industrial site. We're going to bring business. That's so wonderful. But what about the housing and a development and getting some meetings together? And what would you like to see? And what do you need in your home? And have them start dreaming and visioning. I found when I got into housing, our families had not been dreaming or visioning about their housing. It was like, well, my name's on the waiting list. When's my name going to come up? And where's the priority? Oh, I guess recent burnout. So they get to go before me. So now do I go to the back of the line or do I just stay behind? Is all these questions kind of an ebb and flow and constantly trying to be vigilant about when might you get a home and how things can change and how getting on a housing board, getting on an advisory board, reading your tribal papers, reading other papers, reading, going in a grocery store, they have signs up, bulletin boards, read them. They'll help you. It's like some of this stuff needs to be done on your own. And then you can go and ask those questions. Mm-hmm. You'll, know, you'll know the questions. Some of our families have said, I don't even know what question to ask. I'm not sure. Can I have a basement? Do I want a basement? Why would I want a basement? Do I want a fenced in yard? Do I want to be by a church? Do I want to be by a school? Those are all valid. You need to think about that and talk to your family. Absolutely. I mean, these are all things that are part of visioning and dreaming. We forgot how to do that a lot. We got to get back to that. Mm-hmm. That's what we're best at. Yeah. Yeah. Is doing the old ways and, and talking to grandfather. And I mean, my grandfather woke me up at 2.30 in the middle of the night and said, Donna, I was living in Wisconsin on a beautiful lake at a lovely home. And my grandfather woke me up and said, Donna, go home. And I woke up, my husband and I said, my grandfather just spoke to me, Kurt. He told me that I had to go home. The next morning, Kurt thought, oh, that was just a dream. No, we moved. We sold our lake home and I moved home. That was 18 years ago. My grandfather spoke to me in a dream. And they said, they got to they gotta listen to my grandpa. That's why I came home. Because in a dream, he told me I would need it here. Yes. I love the fact oh. that he came and visited you in a dream. I'm a big believer in, in paying attention to dreams. I think you're absolutely right. When we think back about my grandparents and even some of my relatives now, like there, there was enough time, there was spacious enough to really just be quiet and listen and see what comes to you. And I, I agree. We Sometimes I feel like we adopt that opportunity to vision and dream big. Where are you going to be going in the next couple of years? Or what are some hopes and dreams for yourself as you go forward and transitioning out or always still being in the game? The good news is I'm such a verbal person. So when people call for advice, 
or what their options are, I can help them with that. And I like follow through. So I say, well, if I don't hear from you, I'm going to have your number. And do you mind if I call you back just to see where you're at? Because people get indianic. I mean, that's the word we use. If you die, we call it indianic. So if you want to be a little indianic, that's okay. Because I'm not. <laughs> and I'd be happy to call you back. And they'll say, oh, okay, okay. And if you're going to move, just let me know. But here on the res, we pretty much know where everybody moves. I mean, my I, I'm on the same village. I live in the same village that my grandma and grandpa are from. And I think here we have a tendency to do that. I don't know about other, you know, reservations if they do that. In your area, would you do that? Would you have land that your ancestors lived on and then you follow? Would I do that now? Yeah. Yeah, if I got a dream. <laughs> In fact, actually, <laughs> I, I really do. Honestly, I, I would love to go back home. I would love to move back. But there's something inside me that tells me not yet. I feel like there's right. finished oh, business. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mine was the dream saying, Grandpa, when Grandpa said, Donna, go home. That's all he said. And it was his voice. And his false teeth never fit perfectly. So he had a little click to when he talked. So I knew it was my Grandpa. And I woke Curdy up and I said, Curdy, we got to move home to the res. And he, oh, okay. And he rolled all back over. <laughs> but we did. Well, we had a lake home, which is sold in two weeks. The lake home was lovely. So we quickly sold it and we bought a manufactured house. Because we couldn't find anybody to build a house. So we bought a manufactured house. And luckily they have, were having a wonderful sale on the end of the season. And we loved the house. So wham, bam. And then the tribe offered $10,000 to put your sewer and water in a one-time only. Uh, they would put that in for you. So I came up here oh, a couple weekends in a row and looked at the, the lots it still had. And I picked one overlooking a beautiful pond in a wooded area. And that's where I am. Right where I wanted to be. And I know my grandpa walked these woods and the pond area and I feel his presence. His spirit is here. Those grandmas and her mothers. Oh so it's a dear, dear place for me. Mm. And I take good care of it. And I tried to teach that when I was the housing director. You know, believe in the land, believe in you know, those that came on before us. And what they did and what we're going to do. How we can emulate the old ways but bring the new in. So I loved it. I loved doing it. But then I got sick. I got cancer. I got colon cancer. And so that kind of, that kind of, when I had to have surgery, that held me up for a year. I get checked pretty regularly. I don't have it right now. I'm fine. But 
it's like the doctor says, cancer is very prevalent in my family. And um, the likelihood of me developing it again within the so many year period is highly likely. So, but, you know, so I get cancer again, I get cancer again. I'll deal with it if it happens. But so far, so good, you know. Try to take good care of myself, eat good. Although I like chocolate. <laughs> I'm not a drinker. I've never been a drinker. I just never wanted to. So people go, God, are you are you ever good, Donna? I said, why am I good? Well, because you don't drink. Yeah, but how about if I didn't want to? I'm not good. I just didn't want to. <laughs> no, don't call me in the good area for that one. <laughs> I've just never been a drinker. Give me chocolate. <laughs> I'll make a chocolate cake. Oh, Donna! So, you know, I lead a pretty, pretty simple life. I quit smoking years and years ago. It got too expensive, and I said, "That's it." Over twenty years ago, I quit smoking. Oh, I don't even know how long that is. It's even longer than that. So, you know, I try to live a life that's full and helpful. If somebody needs something or needs help. I'm, tell me, I'm here, I'll come. Somebody passes and someone needs things cooked and things. I'm here, I'll help. I like to help and I love to cook. Thank you, first of all. And what I'm hearing you say is you are where you want to be right now. You're exactly where you want to be in home on the res, still helping people surrounded by the people you love. You're in a really good place right now. It's just beautiful. Thank you. So I would love for you to give one advice to our listeners that has helped you through your journey as a young child, all the way up to your elder years. You're like 81 young. <laughs> so uh, one sort of, you know, wisdom, one advice that you want to offer to folks to be thinking about or to maybe incorporate into their life, to practice, what would that be? Listening, to be an active listener and listen to with your eyes and your ears. Because sometimes people will say things that you don't realize they're really looking for help, but they're afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to offer. What can they say? No, they don't need it. Or they can say, oh, God, thank you. I do need some help. So to be available when possible so that people see you as a helping person. Yes, that's, and we share. I find somebody needs something or I've baked something to share. Be helpful and to be sharing, I guess, would be. Mm. Thank you. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Donna, I You're welcome. I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on and telling us your story. And it really helped me to understand you and 
how much you went through, but also how much love, deep love you have for the work that you have been doing in Indian country and to continue to do the work that you're doing now. Yeah. Inspiration. When, one day I will know when it's time for me to go back home. Until then, I feel like creators telling me to continue to keep learning. And I appreciate you sharing that story. So I hope you had as it much fun as I pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you, Donna. And there's no goodbye. So I know there'll be another time when we connect. So be well, Super. be safe. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you be well. Thank you. God bless. Yep. Mm.